Quantum Rabbit, a Frankensound podcast. At first I was curious. At first I thought someone was asking for money. I walked away, then I thought about it, and I thought, well, I have money to give. I could give something. And then I went back to give, and I was like, what? And I looked, and then my daughter actually read the sign faster than I did, and she's 10. And she goes, no, you just put it in the hat. So we put it in the hat. And then we saw the music, and we were like, wow, whoever did this, thank you for restoring our faith in humanity. Wow, that's and good. And then we saw you, and we thought, I bet you that's the guy that thought of something like this, so I came and asked you. So I had this idea. It was a very simple idea. Basically, it's a wooden box with a hat on top. And inside the box would be a data projector, and it would be projecting the image of a musician on the wall behind the box. This image would be life-size, or possibly larger than life-size. But the idea was, when someone puts a coin in the hat, the musician starts to play. There was a little bit more involved in this, which made the idea not quite as simple to put together as that. I needed a speaker system inside the box, a computer and a bunch of circuitry, a cheap $15 metal detector from eBay, a small device called an Arduino. I had to solder all that together. Then there's some software. The hat is very important. A wireless keyboard. Gonna need a trolley and a funnel. Some black felt. Need to glue that all together. Install windows on a mini Mac and a very wide angle projector so the box could sit very close to the wall. It was going to get even more complicated than that on multiple levels, which is what this story is about. Episode 6, The Virtual Busker. It wasn't hard to come up with the name. It was the first name that came into my head and it seemed to stick. And it made sense. It pretty much describes the project perfectly. I already had a performer in mind for this as well. My friend Elisa Sapola. We'd done a fringe show together a few years ago, and she has a quirky quality that I was sure would suit this idea. Lucky for me, she agreed to do it, and we would end up recording the sound and vision required in one day at my studio. But first, I pitched the virtual busker to my old friend Richard Sawada from the Revelation Film Festival. He liked it, and he pitched it to the city of Perth. He had some projects running with them at the time. They liked it too, and before you knew it, there was a plan or at least a plan for a plan, I had to start to think about how this was actually going to work. And maybe just as importantly, why I was doing it. What was the purpose behind this thing? What was the idea conceptually? What was it about? I'm talking about finding the core or the heart of the project and what drives it. Why was I choosing to do this instead of something else? So I come from a musical background where the song is the message and you don't have to explain the song in order for the message to make sense. Whereas in a lot of visual arts, that seems to be the case. You have to have a convincing story around the artwork for the artwork to be able to be appreciated sufficiently by a large number of people. And that story can't just be bullshit either, because understandably, people don't like to be lied to. So anyway you look at it, there's a certain amount of work that has to be done for an artwork to be successful. So when it comes to heavily conceptual art, I don't really buy into it. But I don't give it a full thumbs down either, and here's why. 
at the end of the day, if you've thought about it more and you've spent more time developing it, the work is going to be stronger. That seems to make sense. Until you spend so much time conceptualising that you forget about the actual presentation of it and then it just, nobody gets it. It's just going to be bad conceptual art, in my opinion. But maybe I'm missing something. Maybe if you're a conceptual artist, we could have a discussion about this sometime. There's a lot of different ways to look at things. I just look at it a little bit more like writing a song. You know, it doesn't make much sense to try and describe a song to someone when you can just play someone the song. You can give a, an amazingly poetic description of the song. You can read a very articulate review of the song. But I'm not sure that can ever be quite as good as listening to the song, to know about the song. With the country field. Yeah, we got in a bit deep there. Let's move on. I'd been walking through the city a lot more around this time, and I started to notice, as a lot of people would, the increased level of homelessness on the street. Definitely more than there would have been 15, 10, even five years ago. Often down and out people with a cardboard sign or a hat in front of them asking for a few coins. I started to think I could redistribute any takings from this virtual busker project back into the community by giving it to a charity that works specifically with homelessness in the city. Everybody involved liked the idea and we decided to run with that. Meanwhile I felt obliged to start to talk to some of these people on the street and find out a bit more about their stories. I didn't feel like recording them for the purposes of the podcast. That felt potentially a little exploitative or something. Maybe because I hadn't actually done anything yet with the project. So I just started talking to people. We'd have friendly conversations. I'd sometimes give them a bit of money if I had it to spare. And they would happily tell me a little bit about their situation. How they ended up where they were at. And which organisations were helping them out on the street. Overall, I would say their stories were really diverse. And there wasn't an obvious reason that everyone shared for being in the situation they were in. A little more on that later. But firstly, there was a few challenges. I was enjoying banging a wooden box together in my shed. And the city had locked in 17 nights of the virtual busker over the December period 2017. I'd like to be very clear at this point that anything I say that might sound slightly negative here is not a reflection of the people I was working with at the city. They actually did their best at every level to help this project along. It was more like we were all working together against a common enemy, which was the machinery of bureaucracy at the city of Perth. That may sound slightly convenient because there's not an individual to blame that on. It's more like Skynet in Terminator, you know. But if you go up too hard against it, you probably won't lose your life like you would in Terminator, but maybe you'll lose your job or, in my case, my contract, my project. Hopefully that says enough without saying too much. And, you know, I could be wrong. There might be an evil individual at the top whose sole purpose is to make life difficult for everyone below them. Hmm. The first sign of slight worry, from my point of view, was the request for Christmas carols. Well, I wasn't very keen on that. Christmas carols, I hate Christmas carols and all the fakeness that goes along with Christmas and the shopping and the commercial spending, marketing, trickery. I'm just a Scrooge, but 
They wanted Christmas carols. At least some. I said, okay, you can have four. I think we can do four. Truthfully, I probably said it a little bit more like, that sounds like a great idea. And the other thing is, you know that bit about the project where you want to collect coins and put them in the hat? Well, you can't really do that. Oh, why not? Well, because it's in a public space and you're collecting, even if it's for charity, you have to register and registered charities can only collect for three days a year or something like that. Uh, uh, okay, uh, what if we just, I'm a busker, right? It's a busking project. Yes, but there's a very vocal busking community in Perth and we can't be seen to be assisting one busker over another. And also, if we need to supply you with power, which that was part of the deal, right? Yes. If we need to supply you with power, then buskers need to move on from their location every half hour. And we've booked you for two hours. You see the problem here, right? So the simplest thing for them is to just get rid of the coins. But for me, that kills the whole project. It's nothing without it. It doesn't have any meaning. It'll destroy my art. Wankiness aside, I really did feel that way, and I was on the verge of pulling the project. I don't think I told them that, but there was another idea floating around, which was to supply some form of fake money to allow people to still have the action of putting a coin in the hat, even if it wasn't actually a coin. I really didn't like this idea at first, but then I remembered I did have a collection of worthless old pennies sitting in a jar in my shed. I thought maybe with those, it could still work without compromising the integrity of the project. Or maybe I just really didn't want to lose this gig. But what did this mean for the project's connection to homelessness around the city? It seemed to me it no longer had that connection, so I had to think about that a little bit more. But we'll get back to that. Firstly, come on this little journey with me. It's now the day of the first night of the installation. Last night I was walking through the mall just before 8pm, and I noticed the roller door to the Piccadilly Arcade was closed. Now that's interesting because a shop in the arcade was where I'm supposed to be storing all my equipment overnight. And the busker's supposed to run 7 till 9pm. I wouldn't be able to get into the arcade each night if it's closed. But also the power in the mall, which is supposed to be coming from a hatch in the bottom of a lighting pole. The powers that be haven't confirmed that I'm allowed to use that yet. It's one of those things, each person you speak to, you kind of figure they're in control and can lock in a bunch of things, but... Turns out they can't, they've got to go up the chain. And I'm feeling a lot like a square peg in a round hole at the moment, and nobody's prepared to risk banging me all the way in. To cut a long and painful and potentially boring story short, we got through all these problems, and we ended up starting a night later than planned. It's fair to say the response to the busker exceeded my expectations. I couldn't be happier with it. And then you have to put a penny in the hat to make it quiet again. Nice interlude walking in the city, isn't it? Technology just amazes me, that's all. <laughs> no, very good. You don't expect to usually see this kind of stuff walking by, so it's very impressive to me. I thought I was sort of some catch in it, you know, the penny. I thought, well, we don't have pennies anymore, but obviously then you realise there's a penny in, the, in there to pick up and put in there. Yeah. Things did get kind of chaotic at times. There was a fair bit of background noise going on and kids 
kids went crazy. At one point I counted five hands in the bowl at once, all trying to grab at pennies so they could just put one in the hat, one after the other, regardless of anything that was going on with the projection itself. I had to keep refilling the penny bowl from the bag in the box, and at one point I had to resort to handing out pennies one at a time, because it was just getting too crazy. One kid came up to me at one point and he said to me, Can I have a penny to keep? Well, I said no, because there was a lot of other kids around and if everyone wanted a penny, I was going to run out of pennies pretty quick. I think I'd already lost a few over the nights. Anyway, he kept coming back, again and again asking for a penny. Eventually I said, what's your name? Jeffrey. Well, Jeffrey, I can't give you a penny because these pennies are needed to run the busker. And if I gave everyone a penny, then pretty soon I'd have no pennies and the box wouldn't work. Oh, please. Just one. I really want one. Hmm. Why don't you go ask your mother if she thinks that you should get a penny for yourself? So he did that. And then he came back and said, My mum said, if it's all right with you, then it's okay. Well, I was hoping that mum would get the message but she didn't. I explained to Geoffrey, again, why he couldn't have one of my pennies, this time with his mother nearby listening. She came up to me through the crowd and said, sorry about that. He's very charismatic, I know. Now, I don't like to punch down instead of punching up, but that's not what I was thinking about Geoffrey. Meanwhile, with all the confusion and pennies going in hats, despite my best efforts, Night after night, a bunch of real money ended up in the box. And at the end of the project, I had to do something with it, which is how I ended up at the Ruhr Centre in Northbridge. The Ruhr Centre is located at 33 Shenton Street, and we're open 8.30 to 12.30 Monday to Friday. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we have doctors on site as well. We also have people at Centre. This is Teal. She works for Ruhr Community uh, Services which is an organisation that's on the ground helping with homelessness and mental health issues in Perth. The Rural Centre in Northbridge is a donation-based drop-in centre. I decided to give my leftover funds from the project too. Anything that can be donated, whether it be clothes or things like razors we're really short on, shampoo, conditioner, anything like that. People are in the building 8.30 to 4.30 Monday to Friday, mm. so it can be dropped off at any point during that time. There's a bell on the door, just ring, the, ring our doorbell and we'll definitely happily take donations. Coming into winter, anything like sleeping bags or pillows, jackets, jackets pants, jeans, trek pants, shoes, socks, yep. undies. Fresh undies them. is a huge you know, thing. That, that other lady talking in the background yeah, about undies is Kat. She was the first person I met from Rua. Underwear is really beneficial for our clients here. Kat gave me some background on how she ended up in the business of helping people. I've been a social worker for about 20 years. Um, we used to work in child protection and then in the prisons with dangerous sex offenders um, and then with child and adolescent mental health and then fostering as well, foster agency called Key Assets, so placing real high-needs children with... She stops speaking momentarily to listen to what's going on just outside the door. See, critical incident happening right now, so Till will have to go out and deal with that. <laughs> That's what happens here. Sounds like you enjoy being in the thick of it then. I freaking love it. Love it. Yeah, wouldn't change it for the world. I was curious about that last comment, and what drove Kat to devote her working life to helping others. Um, individually, I had a great childhood. 
um, it was just like it was in my bones. Like since I was 12, I knew that I wanted to help people. First, I wanted to be a policewoman, and then I was just like, no, I want to help people, and I didn't know what it was called. Um, and then it, this random auntie said, so you want to be a social worker, Kathleen? I was just like, yeah, social worker. So from 12, I did all the subjects at school and was a um, the youngest registered social worker in New Zealand at 19. Around this time, Teal comes back in the room. She's keen to explain to me that she's also the coordinator of a project called 50 Lives, 50 Homes. 50 Lives, 50 Homes is a collaborative collective impact campaign. We didn't create a new service, we just pull on the existing services in the sector. So we currently engage with 47 different programs from 27 different organisations. Foundation Housing, Access Housing, Community Housing Limited and the Housing Authority. And between them they made a commitment to give us 50 properties. Um, but to date we've actually housed 119 people in 90 properties. So rather than saying let's do something different, it's saying we've got the skills necessary to end homelessness in the sector already. Let's work together and let's really work on ending homelessness in WA. These plans sounded a lot more major than the small drop-in centre I was expecting when I walked in. I was still trying to get my head around it. So if you see someone new, someone that walks in the door they've never been here before, mm-hmm. how easy is it for them to be housed? Or it depends completely on the situation? Yeah, 100% depends on the situation. So 50-50 is about housing the most vulnerable rough sleepers. So we use a tool called the BI Spit app, which came from Canada and America. It's got a ridiculous name. It's the Vulnerability Index Service Prioritisation Decision Assistance Tool. In case you missed it, that's the Vulnerability Index and Service Prioritisation Decision Assistance Tool. That's hence why we call it the VI Spit app. Yeah, we never call it by its full name because people just get going. It's a form that you fill out with a bunch of questions. Questions like, have you been attacked or beaten up since becoming homeless? Is there anybody that thinks you owe them money? Questions about health and any recent hospitalisation. Basically, they're trying to make a judgement on how vulnerable you are. This scores people out of 20. So if you score zero to four, you need that brief intervention work, a bit of financial counselling, but you can maintain tenancies yourselves. Okay. If you score five to nine, it's you're still vulnerable. And that's when most of the services in Perth are targeted. So it's one year um, case management, getting someone into a property and getting them set up, but they're able to maintain it themselves. The people 50-50 works with is 10 plus. Mm-hmm. So they're people who need permanent housing, permanent wraparound support services, and they're always probably going to need support throughout their lives at some point. Yeah. Um, and that's the target group we're targeting, because if you can house the most vulnerable rough sleepers, you can house anyone. That makes sense to me, and it's obvious that they're doing really important work that not many people would have the balls to commit to. I also wanted to know if there was any common experience these people had that resulted in their situation of being homeless. I think the biggest Tra- one's trauma. Trauma. Yeah. So people talk about drug and alcohol and mental health being the biggest um, causes of homelessness, and they do factor in. But if someone's been traumatised since they were a child, it's trauma is this huge, huge, huge beast. So we have generations of people being traumatised through different means, whether it be our part of the stolen generation, whether it be... Institutions. Um, yeah, they've been in different institutions since they were children, whether it be their parents have drug and alcohol and mental health mm. conditions and aren't able to care for them. Mm. and they're suddenly stuck in a welfare system that doesn't support them through that. Do you think that's widely enough recognised? No. It's a, it's a new buzzword. It's like trauma has just come around in the last five years or so. That's what I believe, yeah. you know, in my practice, I've been a social worker for 20 years, trauma. It's this, this buzzword that we're using, but it is very relevant and it, it makes sense. So it's not just the community service sector's issue. It's everyone's it's issue everyone's and it's everyone needs to support everyone. I still had one burning question I wanted to ask which I know is widely debated. 
Should I give money to people on the street? Look, I'd rather say, hey, mate, are you hungry? Let's go over and buy, buy you a sandwich, you know, or, or give out the food and, and the practical support. That's what, that's what I personally yeah. do. Whereas I think I'm, I'm kind of on the belief where I'm thinking, once you've given that money over, you can't control where it's going. So if that shot or if that booze or if that drink's going to stop someone taking their life that night, if that's what they need to get through the night, who am I to say what they can and can't spend their money on? It may go to food. It may go to a bottle of wine. It may go to a shot of air. Like, you don't know where it's going. So you can ask people if they're hungry, if there's mm. something. But I know I remember talking to a friend and um, she also works in this industry and she was talking to someone and said, do people offer you food lots or drinks? Like, so much. She's like, what do you want? She's like, I'm just dying for a cigarette. Like, all I really want is a cigarette, but people don't give you money because they're afraid you're going to spend it on drugs. And I think there's still that belief out there that if you see someone that's homeless, they've got a drug and alcohol problem and they're going to spend mm, it on it. that judgement there. How would you guys suggest then for people that do want to help, what could they do? You can donate to Rua, absolutely. <laughs> and, we, you know, that goes towards programs like this um, where we are ending homelessness in WA. Um, but I think just going back to basics, basics and being human and being kind and when you walk past that person on the street say good morning you know yeah don't don't, ignore them don't Don't turn away don't cross the road yeah there's a lot of that myth busting that we're trying to break down maybe treat them like a human that's what i'm saying you know go back to basics we've all got a belly button that's my favorite saying and i can't think of a better way to end it than that we've all got a belly button thanks for listening Check out the show notes for links to Rua and the projects they're involved with, including 50 Lives, 50 Homes. Thanks to everyone that helped with the Virtual Busker project, including Richard Sawada and the team at Revelation Film Festival, the staff at the City of Perth, Elisa Sopola for standing there and playing the violin, and the good people everywhere.